Father, this morning we come to you with our hearts full. It's been a good week, and we've seen you at work this week. And God, we know you're in control, even though sometimes it seems like things are out of control. Father, even as we sang this morning, we praise you for the church. That you've raised us up and that the gates of hell will not prevail. We praise you this morning that even this week as we've seen the church gather around those who are hurting, pray for them and support them. What a blessing to be a part of such a body. Father, this morning as we gather as a church around your word, we pray that you would be honored and glorified. As we open your word, your spirit would work in us, molding us into your image, convicting us and changing us. Pray that you'd give me boldness and authority to speak with clarity as I proclaim your truths. In perilous in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Parenting is one of those things you kind of learn from experience as you go. It's not something you just know. You learn. You learn from mistakes. You learn what works well. As Chris and I have been growing as parents, we've learned from experience that Clinton and Judah, and probably any two four-year-olds, do not do well going to sleep in the same room. So we've learned to split them up. In fact, we'll often have one fall asleep on the guest bed downstairs and one fall asleep in their bed, and then when they fall asleep, we'll move them to the same room because it just works easier. Four-year-olds do not go to sleep when they're in the same room. However, this solution has introduced a new problem. Now, come to find out, when there's not someone else in the room, they're scared of the dark. And it's not enough to simply tell them from downstairs as they're crying, go to sleep, you're fine, we're here, there's no bad guys in your room. They don't believe me, right? They, they want to see me, they want me there, they want to feel me, they want to know that, that I am there, and because I am there, there's no bad guys. I often find that I'm the same way when it comes to faith. My faith is most challenged. My trust in God is most tested when I don't feel Him, when I don't feel His blessing. Just like my kids feel more secure in the dark when they can see and feel me, so it is with me. I know that God is there and I know His promises. But I want to feel his presence. I want to know his blessing. It's easy to trust when life is going well and I feel blessed. And it's easy to doubt when I feel alone and forgotten. I'm easily drawn to doubt when what I see and feel call into question what I believe. It's in times like these that I sometimes wish I could experience God. I want to experience him in the way I read in his word, in the Bible, 
It's times like these, and I wish I could be in Bible times. I wish I could see a miracle, right? Or, or have a prophet come to me and say, this is what you should do. I want some clarity in the fog of life, a dream or a vision or, 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 or something to give me guidance, something tangible. I want to see him. I want to know him. I want to feel him. It's times like this when I long to come face to face with the power of God to reassure my faith. The reality is that God's faithfulness is not dependent on how I feel, but on who he is. Even though I feel like it, he has not forgotten me. He is at work, and he has revealed himself to me and given me all that I need through his word. The reality is that experiencing God through theophanies and miracles and visions and dreams, even in Bible times, was not the norm. It's never been God's normal way of communicating with his people. And this morning in the book of Esther, we get a picture of normal life in Bible times and today. Normal life under the protective, providential, and invisible hand of God. This morning... We're going to start a new series through the book of Esther. Esther's a unique book. It's a historical book of the Bible. And it takes place in the capital city of Persia, Susa. The book of Esther is unique in that it's the only book in the Bible in which God is not mentioned one time. And yet there's no book in the Bible that so displays the providence of God. In fact, it is this startling absence of God that so powerfully highlights his presence. I invite you to join me this morning in Esther chapter 1. Esther chapter 1. This morning we're going to watch as God moves, setting the stage for the salvation of the Jewish people through a drunk king, through bad advisors, and through a bold queen. And as we watch God move pieces into place where he wants them, preparing the way of salvation before any problem even arises, we'll consider the historical setting of Esther. We'll be challenged by the empty pride of a powerless king. And we'll be encouraged by the power and providence of God. Esther, chapter 1. I'm going to warn you ahead of time, there's some names in here that I might struggle through, but just bear with me. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, that is the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which is in Shushan, the citadel, that in the third year of his reign he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. And when these days were completed, the king made a feast, lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan, the citadel, from great to small, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white and blue linen curtains, 
fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars. And the couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, and white and black marble. They served drinks in golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other, with royal wine in abundance according to the generosity of the king. In accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory, for so the king had ordered all the officials of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbana, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Karkas, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown, in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. But Queen Vashti refused to come to the king's, at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Therefore the king was furious, and his anger burned within him. The king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner toward all who knew law and justice, those closest to him being Karshana, Shethar, Ab, Admatha, Tarshish, Merez, Marsina, and Mamukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence and who ranked highest in the kingdom. What shall we do to the queen Vashti according to the law? Because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs. And Mamukan answered before the king and the princess, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women, so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes. When they report, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. This very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Media will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen. Thus, there will be excessive contempt and wrath. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him, and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it will, be al so that it will not be altered, that Vashti shall come no more before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. When the king's decree, which he shall make, is proclaimed throughout all this empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. And the, reply, and the reply pleased the king and the princess. And the king did according to the word of Mamukan. Then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province its own script, and to every people in their own language, that each man should be master in his own house and speak in the language of his own people. morning we start here in Esther 1. And I hope this won't feel like a history lesson, but I think that it is important to set the historical setting because it's important to understand not just where we are in scripture, but where we are in history. The first nine verses of Esther serve really to orient us. They tell us where we are in history, where we are in the world, and the circumstances which surround our story. Notice in verse 1, it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, 
The king at the time, his name is Xerxes. Xerxes. This is a map showing his kingdom. Notice in verse 1 it says, this Ahasuerus, Xerxes, is the one who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. If you'll notice on the map, Susa is right here at the beginning of this green line. So this is kind of where our story is taking place. His kingdom stretches all the way from India in the east past Egypt in the west down into Ethiopia. Xerxes, Ahasuerus, as we read here in Esther 1, reigned from 485 to 465 B.C. His father and grandfather had both been powerful kings who had expanded the Persian Empire turning it into the most powerful empire on earth. When Xerxes comes to power in 485 BC, he inherits a massive, powerful kingdom and a legacy to uphold. Notice it says it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. In verse 2, In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom which was in Susan, the citadel, then the third year of his reign. Third year of his reign would have been 483 B.C. 483 B.C. I put together a timeline because I think it is important to understand the time that we're looking at. The dates inside the red box are the dates that take place during Esther. It's basically a 10-year period that we're working with here. But there's several other things that are important to understand as we launch into Esther. Not only is it important to understand Persian history, but just as important, if not more important, to understand where we are in Jewish history at this time. I think there's several interesting points to note here. First, you'll notice that in 722 BC is the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel to Assyria. Several years later, in 607 B.C., the first group of exiles from Judah are carried away, and thus begins the 70-year exile. Between 607 and 586, there are several rebellions. Israel is not free, but they're not yet all captive. The king and all the important people have been taken out of Judah. They're exiled away. But there's a, a vassal king that is set up. And he keeps leading rebellions. And so king after king is put down, and yet they keep leading these rebellions. So finally, the king of Babylon comes and says, I've had enough. And he wipes it out, and he destroys the temple in 586 B.C. and carries them all away. 539 B.C., Cyrus, which would be Xerxes' grandfather of Persia, conquers Babylon. Two years later, in 537 B.C., Cyrus allows Babylonian captivities to re captives to, re to return home. This is what we read of in Haggai, which is a, a book we were in earlier this year uh, that we spent some time in. So under Zerubbabel and Joshua, the first exile return to the land. 42,000 captives return. Now I think this is very important for us to understand. Because a lot of times, at least me, when, when I approach Esther, I've always pictured 
Esther and Mordecai as these just rebellious people, right? God's told them to go back to their land, and yet they have chosen to stay. They've chosen to disobey. They've chosen the, the wealth of Persia over obedience to God. And yet I think what we see in history is much more complex as it often is. Because there's three returns from exile. And two of them do not even happen until 16 years and 29 years, respectively, after Esther has finished. Ezra and Nehemiah have not even come on the scene yet by the time we get to Esther. And in fact, in 537 BC, when Cyrus allows Babylonian captivities to re- captives to return home, that's 58 years before Esther's even born. Or 58 years before Esther begins. So Esther had not even been born yet. And in fact, the 42,000 who return are not the majority, but the minority. So Esther and Mordecai are not some minority, rebellious Jews. And maybe they should have returned. In fact, they probably should have. I don't know if they had the freedom to just up and go any day that they wanted to back to their homeland. They should have been seeking to return. And they chose to stay. But it's not as simple as simply everyone had gone back but them. And I think that's important to understand because as we come to Esther and we work our way through the book, if you start with the idea that they're just purposefully rebellious people, it's not going to make sense to you because what you find in Esther is that although Esther and Mordecai are living more like Persians than we would expect, they still love God. They still trust God. They still serve him. In fact, what we'll see is phenomenal faith that they show. Specifically Mordecai, in a very difficult situation, he trusts God. And in fact, what else we'll see is that the Jewish people, though still in exile, are still set apart. They're known. When Haman comes, he knows who the Jews are. Even in exile, they are set apart. It's known who they are. So I think that's important for us as we, as we go into this book to understand in history where we are. Yes, we're in post-exilic times, but two of the three exile returns have not even happened yet. So that's important to keep in mind as we move forward. Secondly, understanding where we are in history, we're in post-exilic Israel time period in the Persian Empire. In Esther 1, we see a powerless king. Seems like an odd statement to make about a king who seems to have it all. In the first nine verses of Esther 1, Xerxes seems to be a very powerful king. He's he's displaying his wealth. He's displaying his power. And in fact, in human terms, he's the most powerful man on earth. And yet what we see is he does not even have power over himself. 
Despite his wealth and influence and human power, he's a man out of control. He's a drunk. He's angry and he's foolish. As we come to Esther 1, there's this massive banquet that he's putting on, and Vashti is putting on a banquet as well, the queen. And you may ask, what is the purpose of this party, of these banquets? Why are they doing this? The Bible does not reveal the why to us, but history does. Herodotus, a contemporary historian, reveals in his histories that Xerxes hosted a massive banquet to confer with his leaders to plan a possible invasion of Greece. Given the timing of Esther 1 and Xerxes' invasion of Greece, it's probable that this is the party that we find in Esther 1. Herodotus goes on to give us some of the the backstory leading up to this party. As I noted earlier, Xerxes' father had invaded Greece. As I noted earlier, Xerxes' father and grandfather had been powerful leaders who had conquered much land. And Xerxes' father had actually tried to invade Greece. He'd been humiliated in defeat at the Battle of Marathon in 490 B.C. And Herodotus says that Xerxes felt compelled to avenge his father's defeat and to continue to expand the kingdom. So as we come to Esther 1, that's the background. Xerxes is trying. He's throwing this massive party, inviting all his military leaders and the princes of Persia, parading his wealth and his power in order to gain approval for his war. In fact, this very likely plays into Xerxes' irrational request and punishment of Vashti. Xerxes drunk, asks her to come before him to show her beauty before the entire court. And she boldly refuses. Xerxes becomes angry. Becomes angry. And he seeks counsel. Counsel from men who are Basically, yes, men. Men who are seeking to please the king and not to tell him the truth. In a time when Xerxes is purposefully and desperately displaying his power, seeking approval for his war, his wife boldly defies him. Of all people in front of the whole court, his wife. What we find is she was right and he was wrong. He was drunk, he was angry. And with his pride hurt, Xerxes, who surrounded himself with self-seeking yes-men, listens to the terrible counsel of his advisors. He deposes Vashti, and he issues an unnecessary and ultimately pointless and unenforceable edict. What we see here from Xerxes is childlike. He's, He's stomping his foot and he's throwing a fit. You've embarrassed me. So I'm going to, you're done, you're gone, you're finished. His pride is harmed, so he throws a fit. And as we see in history, this is just the beginning of Xerxes' losses. Because he does go on to invade Greece. 
and he loses. He loses his navy at the Battle of Salamis in 480 BC. And ultimately, his army suffers defeat at the Battle of Plataea. So as we begin Esther chapter 1, Xerxes is seeking to show his strength, to gain support. And then he goes to war. He goes out as a, as a seemingly powerful king. And then as we come to Esther 2, he comes back defeated, humbled. Xerxes looks powerful. And by human standards, he is powerful, and yet he is merely a pawn in the hand of an almighty God. He can't even take what he wants by force from Greece. He's an alcoholic driven by pride and anger, and he cannot even do what he wants to do. He is a powerless king in the hands of a powerful God. From the very beginning in Esther 1, we see God at work in the background. We see a king who on earth has all the power in the world. And yet he can't get his way. Esther is a reminder to us that all power comes from God. There's not a king or president, or judge, or member of Congress, or governor, or CEO who has not been placed in power by God, or who can go against God's plan. God is in control, and he's still in control. As we come to Esther 1, we see a God who is at work behind politics. A God who gives power and a God who takes power away. In fact, that's the third point. A powerless king and a powerful and providential God. See, I'm sorry if this has felt more like a history lesson than a sermon, but Esther 1 is important. Because in Esther 1, he's setting the stage. He's setting the stage. He's to, it's here to answer the question, how is it that a Jewish woman came to be queen of the most powerful nation on earth? How and why? And the answer, without mentioning God one time in chapter 1 of Esther, is clearly through the providential work of a powerful God. God's not mentioned one time. And in fact, in the whole book, you will not see him answer one time, and yet God is clearly at work. In Esther 1, we see a king who is out of control, who is drunk, who is, who is full of pride. We see advisors who are looking out for themselves. We see a queen 
who boldly defies her husband and her king, knowing that her life is probably on the line. And yet through the king, through the advisors, and through the queen, God is at work in the background, directing them, moving them around like pieces on a board. He's in control. In fact, even in the improbable defeat of Persia at the hands of Greece and the return of a humble, defeated king to pick a new queen as we come to Esther chapter 2 next week, God is at work. We have the privilege of reading ahead. In fact, we don't even have to read ahead. Many of us knows, know what happens in the story of Esther. The story we've heard our whole lives. We know the end of the story. But to Esther, to Mordecai, to the other Jews living in Persia, they don't. To them, this is happening in real time. This is the reality of day to day that they are living with. They don't know the end. They don't know what's going to happen. But their God does. He knew. God knew that in just a few short chapters, the Jewish people living in Persia were going to need someone with access to the king. And long before this problem even arises, years in advance, God is at work. He's moving pieces into position. He's already working to bring them salvation. I want to encourage you this morning that God is at work. You may not be able to see the end of the story just as the Jews living in Persia couldn't. But God still does. He loves you. And He knows what He is doing. Your life may seem chaotic, confusing, and out of control. But God is at work. You may not see Him. You may not feel Him. But He is there. And he's at work. He has not forgotten you. His promises are just as true in the dark of whatever you're facing as they are when life is well. So trust him. Against all odds, trust him. That's really what Esther comes down to as we will see in the next several weeks. Trusting God even when you don't see Him. Trusting God in the valleys, in the mountaintops of real life. That's what Esther is. I think it's easy sometimes to read of David 
And how God worked in his life. Or to come to the book of Acts and see God working in the establishment of the church. Why can't I experience that? Why can't I see that? And Esther says, this is real life. This is trusting God in the ups and the downs of life. This is trusting God when you don't see him, when you don't feel him, when you don't know what he is doing. He's still at work. You don't have to see him. His faithfulness is not based on how you feel. It's based on who he is. So trust him. And on a much grander scale, what we see in Esther is a tiny picture of what we see in the cross. A faithful God who is at work for the good of his people. In the coming chapters of Esther, we'll see a providential hand of God that sends Esther to bring salvation to the Jews from annihilation. And as we look in the pages of the Word of God, we see a God who looked and saw our sin and sent a Savior. His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, to pay our penalty. Long before there was a problem, he saw it, and he planned to act. And he offers us salvation. We're not facing annihilation like the Jews will be in Esther. There is not at the moment a political force trying to eradicate us. But we serve the same God as Esther did. A God who is at work in the background. And while I'm not trying to spiritualize what we see in Esther, because this, this really happened, and God really did work here, I think there is a correlation to what we see in Christ. God looking down seeing our sin and sending his son, Jesus Christ, to pay our penalty to give us life. And all it takes is simple faith. Just to trust him. Just to believe. To simply trust. To trust that God is at work. When you don't feel Him, when you don't see Him, when life doesn't make sense, God is at work. As Romans talks about, He who sent His own Son, will He not give you all much more? So the first question this morning is, are you a believer? Have you placed your faith in Christ alone for salvation? Because the Bible tells us that we're all sinners. 
And we're all separated from God. And the penalty for sin is death. But God sent his son to pay our penalty and to give us life. And all you have to do is trust in him and you will be saved. And then does those of us who have believed. The question is, are you trusting him today? Even when you don't see him, even when you don't feel him, whatever life throws at you, God is in control. God is working. And we can trust him. We're going to close with the song, O Church Arise.